0: will so turn with me this morning to 1st Peter chapter 4, 1st Peter chapter 4, and um, I'm messing up my sermon plan today. Uh, we were going to look at verse 7 through verse 11, but in the study and thinking about these things, we're not going to go beyond verse 7. So would you read with me 1st Peter chapter 4 verse 7, but... The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Let me read that again. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. This is the word of God. At the end of the, the last paragraph that Peter wrote, He concluded that thought that people would speak evil of Christians in this world. If you decide that you're going to live a life that's faithful and true to the Word of God and in obedience to what He's commanded, if you refuse to indulge in sinful pleasures, not everyone's going to be happy about that. Not everyone will see the value in following Christ, and you will be persecuted. You will be spoken against People will come against you, but you can rest assured that Jesus will have the last word. If you go back to verse 4, Peter says in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. Speaking evil of you. But verse verse 5, he says, "...they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead." We discussed this last week, that even though we may be judged according to men in the flesh, and even if it were to go to the point that we are put to death for what we believe, we can be assured of this, that Peter says, we, though judged according to men in the flesh, live according to God in the Spirit. We have a hope that's beyond this life, and though we're persecuted, though we're spoken against, Jesus will have the last word, and they will stand at the judgment. Now, when we think about that, and we think about that last day, that last judgment, when Jesus comes and He makes all things right, He satisfies justice in all the earth, vindicates His people and His own name, that seems like something that's so far out in the distance. Something that we've heard about our whole lives, yet we really aren't sure if it'll ever come. We would affirm that we believe it, that Jesus is coming, that he will judge, that he will make things right, but it just seems so far away. To some, it may seem more like an emotional crutch than any real consolation for what the Christians experience in this life. But Peter begins this next paragraph, as we've just read this morning, with a very critical truth, and one that we have to remind ourselves, and that is this, that the end of all things is at hand. It is at hand. And what does he mean by the end of all things? Of course, you can't have a verse like this and people not debate it over the years. I've come to the conclusion that usually the most clear thing is probably the right thing. Uh, Some say that the end of all things uh, refers to the destruction of Jerusalem. At the time that Peter was writing this, he's writing to a mostly Jewish audience, and it wouldn't be much time at all before Jerusalem would be invaded and destroyed, the temple would be destroyed, and the end of the Jewish system as they knew it, the religious system and the sacrificial system would come to an end. And that did happen. But is that what Peter's talking about? Nah, maybe. I don't think so. Some say that the end of all things, he's referring to the death of believers. That though you are persecuted in this life and you're spoken against and things don't always go well for you here, you can rest assured in this, that the end of all things is at hand. So be encouraged. You're going to (laughs) die. Everything's going to be okay. I, I don't think so. Maybe. It's true that you will die and you don't know when, but... I don't think that's what Peter's talking about. And the third view, and my view, is that this is a reference to none other than the return of Christ. That day that Jesus will come again. I believe it is an eschatological end. The end of the age and the coming of Christ. Now the word end there is the Greek word telos. And it's not an end as in the cessation of something. That you come to a stop and it is no more. It's not an end as in there will be no more of anything. But an end in this sense that it is the result or the culmination or the fulfillment of something. This is the end that Peter's referring to. The end that he speaks of is that end when God's purposes on earth are accomplished and he returns to gather his people, execute justice, and reign in his kingdom. That's the end that Peter is pointing us to. And what does he say about this end? It's very clear. He says the end of all things is at hand or near. John the Baptist used that same word when he began to preach and and proclaim the coming of the Messiah when Jesus came the first time. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. James used the same word when he spoke of Jesus' second coming, James 5 8. He says, You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's near. And so there's this expectation that's set throughout the entire New Testament that the return of Christ is never far away. Christians of all ages have lived in anticipation of His coming. Because He could very well come in their own lifetimes. Just as even today, we could say truly that Jesus could very well come in your lifetime or in mine. Now, let me just say this to be clear. We don't set dates. Jesus said that no one knows the day or the hour. In fact, in Jesus' own self-imposed restrictions when he was here in the flesh he said that he himself did not even know the time of his own coming he said neither do the angels know only one knows and who is that he said the father only god the father knows so date setting is pointless and those who do it should be avoided Jesus said that He would come in a time that you don't expect it. So if you do set a date and you're looking for Jesus to come, you're ruining it for the rest of us because Jesus can't come then because you're looking for Him. Some of you caught on to that. So stop setting dates. You're messing it up for the rest of us. What about those who say, we've been hearing about the coming of Jesus for years. We've heard it our whole lives that Jesus is coming soon. You know, I heard this song that they sang this morning in the choir when I was a kid. Some of you who are much older than me heard it when you were a kid. That song's been around a long time. So is He coming soon or not? He hasn't come yet. Why should we expect Him to come now? Well, Peter actually anticipated that question when he wrote his second letter. 2 Peter 3, verse 3 and 4, he said, Scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And you know what? They're not wrong. Things have just gone on, seasons have come and gone. Political powers have changed hands and, and dictators have risen and fallen, and this person's been predicted to be the Antichrist, and that person's been predicted to be the Antichrist. And, you know, we've had wars and rumors of wars, and famines, and floods, and earthquakes. All that stuff's been going on forever. Why should we expect that Jesus should come now? Jesus' disciples, the Christians of the first century, looked for him to return in their own day. But Peter reminds us just a few verses later in that same chapter, verse 8 through 10, he says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And as a thousand years is as a day. Listen, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, Peter says, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know why Jesus hasn't come yet? Because He's giving sinners like us time to repent and to believe. He is kind, He is patient. But, Peter says, The day of the Lord will come, and he uses this analogy as a thief in the night. No one expects a thief to come, and Jesus will come in that same way. Now, Peter didn't make that up. He got it from Jesus. Matthew 24, verse 42 to 44, Jesus said, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would watch and not allow his house to be broken into. Well, that makes sense, right? If you know a thief is coming, you're going to be sitting at the door with your gun. You're going to have the lights on. You're ready to go. But Jesus says, therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. If His coming was near when Peter wrote this passage 2,000 years ago, how much nearer are we now to His coming? So we live in anticipation. We live with expectation. And it's good that we don't know. Here's why. If you knew that Jesus wasn't coming in your lifetime... If you knew that Jesus wasn't coming this year, what would you be tempted to do? Be lazy. To live for your own comfort, your own satisfaction, the lusts of your flesh. You would be tempted to not take your walk with the Lord so seriously. Jesus isn't coming for a while. I'm okay. It's a good thing that if he is coming tomorrow or next week or in 10 minutes, it's a good thing we don't know that either because we, as humans, you know what we'd do? We'd panic which stress is everything ready. How do I know this? Well, thought of this this week, even from my own childhood, I'm sure some of you know this and experienced this as well. But when my brother and I got to the age that we were old enough to be left at home alone, I don't really know what that age is. I feel like as generations go, that age gets a little bit older. Um, but whatever age it was we were left at home. My mom would leave in the morning, she'd go to work, and she'd say, Now listen, y'all are home by yourself today, play, have fun, watch TV, whatever. But listen, when I get home this evening, your room better be clean, the furniture better be dusted, and the floor better be vacuumed. If I come home and those things aren't done, you're grounded, you're getting your tail whooped, you know, whatever, whatever the punishment was. So what do what a good, you know, boys at home do? You sit out on the couch, you go outside and you play, yeah, I got plenty of time. She's not going to be home till 5 30. Well, there's plenty of time to clean the room, dust the furniture, and vacuum the floor. And you put it off and you put it off and you put it off and you just do what you want to all day long. And then what happens? The time comes and you look and it's five fifteen and you panic. Oh no. Or worse, you haven't been looking at the clock and you see the car coming up the driveway. And you jump up out of the chair or you run in from outside and you go to your room and you're throwing stuff in the closet as hard as you can. You're swiping the furniture at every pass and you grab the vacuum cleaner and do the best you can with the time you have and hope she doesn't notice. That's how we would treat the coming of the Lord if we knew when He would return. If we knew He wasn't coming for a while, we'd put it off. We wouldn't worry about our Christian life. We wouldn't worry about our walk with the Lord. We'd go on with ourselves and do what we wanted and then the time would come and we would panic. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming soon. He hasn't told us when, so you must live your life with expectation. So how do we prepare for the end? Everybody knows a prepper, right? Everybody that was around in 1999 knows a prepper. How do we prepare for the end? When we think about the coming of Christ, what's the very first thing that we should be motivated to do? Peter's clear. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your what? Your prayers. Be serious and watchful in your prayers. In your prayers. Into prayer, unto prayer, for the purpose of prayer. Living with the knowledge of the nearness of Jesus' return should drive us to our knees in prayer. Now you think about of all the things that we spend our lives doing. If you had a, a chart, a graph, and you categorized everything that you did with your life by percentages. Everybody likes a good pie chart. You had this little section for prayer. Could you see it? of all the things that we spend our lives doing, of all the the spiritual disciplines even. Serious and watchful prayer is probably the thing that we do the very least. Yet it's the thing we need the most. How should we pray? The way we live our lives affect the way that we pray. And that's why Peter says... To be serious and watchful in your prayers. The word he uses for serious means of sound mind, of sound judgment. You see, if we are of a sound mind, if we're taking life seriously, our Christian life seriously, we will see the things in the world for what they are. Especially when it comes to sin, but even things that aren't inherently sinful, we will really see what value they add to our lives. Romans thirteen twelve. Paul said, the night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. He said in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, that when the Lord comes, he will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Jesus is coming. He is coming soon. So what is it that has priority in your heart? What are you living for? When he says to be watchful, he means to be sober or self-controlled. You see, if you really know that Jesus is coming very soon, it will put a very effective filter on what you do, where you go, and what you decide. If you really believe that at a time that you don't expect it, whatever you're doing will be interrupted by the return of Jesus, that really should affect what you find yourself doing. You'll have a shift in the priorities in your life. Yesterday we went to Monster Jam. It was fun. I'm okay if we don't do it again. Monster Jam's great. I don't think there's anything inherently sinful in going to Monster Jam. But I don't want to make that such a priority or such a focus or even doing things like that with my kids in my life to the extent that that's where I'm found when Jesus comes. I'd have been okay if he'd come when we were at Monster Jam yesterday. But I don't want to live for things like that. First John chapter three, verse two and three. This is a very important passage. First John two or three, two and three. He says, beloved, we are we now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, that is when he comes, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. That's exciting. We love that verse, but here's what he says next. He says, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. Everyone who has this hope in Him, that is everyone who is looking for the return of Christ, looking forward to that day with expectation that Jesus is coming again, and we're going to be like Him when we see Him. Everyone who has that hope purifies himself now. Just as He is pure. And I just want to hone in on that word, everyone. That's an important word. If it's true that everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, what does that mean if you don't have that hope in him? You're not purifying yourself. You're not overly concerned with the sin in your life. So you think of it this way, if you're not purifying yourself, if you're not getting rid of the sin that's in your own life, if you're not being conformed to the image of Christ, if you're not walking with the Lord, you have to ask yourself, do you really have that hope in him? Are you looking for His coming? Are you a Christian at all? Because this is what Peter's been saying this whole time. If you have hope in Christ, there's going to be a trend towards holiness in your life. You're going to sin. You're going to mess up. You're not going to be perfect. But there ought to be a progression in your life of being conformed to the image of Jesus. And if you're not purifying yourself, do you have that hope? Since we're talking about priorities in, the, in light of the return of Christ, let, let me just give you a bonus passage. A bonus passage from the pastor here this morning. Hebrews ten twenty three to 25 Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. As is the manner of some but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You think about the gathering of the church. We meet here every Sunday. If we really are expecting Jesus to come, if we're really looking for the return of Christ, our response will not to be gathering with the church less, it will be gather with the church More. I don't care if the polls classify regular church attendance as once a month. That is not regular church attendance. I'll just be honest, if it's consistently only two or three times a month, that's pushing it. Because Christians have a desire to gather with the people of God. And if you really expect that Jesus could come any moment, wouldn't you much rather be found here when he comes than anywhere out there? What if he comes this morning? What if he comes next Sunday morning? Where will you be? That one was free. Knowing that the end of all things is at hand, knowing that the return of Christ is near, we should be motivated to purity, to holiness, to fellowship with God, and to closeness with the people of God in the church. Why? Why? What's the point Peter's getting to here? Why should we do this? For the purpose of prayer. For the purpose of prayer. We need God. We are dependent on him. I need God and I don't want any sin in my life, any distraction in, in the world, any misplaced priority to hinder my fellowship, my relationship, my prayers to Him. Jesus is coming and if we want ourselves to be ready if we want to do anything worthwhile for him in this world before he comes we must be a people who pray we must be a people who pray we need prayer corporately as a church Some of you may know the name Francis Schaeffer. He died in 1984, but listen to what he wrote even in his own lifetime in one of his sermons. He said this, The central problem of our age is not liberalism or modernism, nor the old Roman Catholicism, nor the new Roman Catholicism, nor the threat of communism, nor even the threat of rationalism and the monolithic consensus that surrounds us. And we can add any other list of things that we see as threats to the church to that. Whatever it may be. All these, Schaefer says, are dangerous, but not the primary threat. The real problem is this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, individually and corporately, tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than of the Spirit. The greatest threat to our church is not whoever's sitting in the White House. The greatest threat to our church isn't even some organization out there who hates churches. The greatest threat to our church is that we might do some really good things in our own strength and without the Spirit of God. We do a lot of really good things. We have some good ministries here. I'm thankful for the the brotherhood ministry, for the Baptist women's group, and for what the Sunday school classes do, and the discipleship groups do, and what the deacons do. I'm so thankful for all of the good things that we do here, because we do a lot of good things. But what value is it if we do it in the strength of our flesh and not with the help of the Spirit of God? I feel like I try to stick to the Bible and to speak the truth and to teach the word faithfully, but even if I should stand here and preach and say the perfect truth without any error for my entire life, if I do not do it in the strength of God instead of my own strength, if I don't do it with the help of the Spirit of God, it's useless. It won't accomplish anything. We can go knock on doors, we can share the gospel, we can pray for people, but if we do all of these things in our own strength, not dependent on God and His help, it will be in vain. Therefore, we must pray. If we want to be used of God, if we want to see His blessing here in a way that matters in eternity, we must be people of prayer if when Jesus comes we want to have done something that's worthy of hearing him say well done we must be a church that expresses our dependence on God and begs him for his help every single day in prayer we must pray we need it corporately as a church but we need prayer as individual Christians since i believe that jesus is Coming And that is coming is very near. Here are some things that I want to be faithful in praying for. Some things that maybe I think you should be praying for. One, I'm praying for personal holiness. I want to, I want to make sure my heart's right with God. If Jesus comes today, I want when He comes, my heart to be clean. I don't want anything between me and Him. I'm praying for the conversion of unbelievers I know. You and I, we all know people in our own families, friends, people who are close to us, whether you work with them or go to school with them, whatever. You know people who are unbelievers, who are lost and dead in their sins. And since we know that Jesus is coming very soon, we need to be busy praying for them. I'm praying not just for them as unbelievers, but I'm praying for courage and boldness to share the gospel. We don't need to Just pray for them and expect God to write the message in the sky and and they'd be saved. No, God's going to use people and I want to be faithful. I'm praying that God will help me to be bold, to faithfully share the gospel with these people I know. And I'm praying, this is the fourth thing on my list, I'm praying for spiritual awakening and revival in the church. Everybody knows what revival is, at least they say they do. I mean, revival is that work of God when Christians are are particularly stirred, their affections are stirred for God and they're faithful to him. They start putting away all their sin, they repent, they walk closely with the Lord and obey him. I'm not just praying for revival, I'm praying for spiritual awakening and revival. What's the difference? You can't revive somebody who's dead. There are people in churches all across the world, but even in our own country and, and in our own region. You know, we live in the South, everybody's a Christian. There are people, I believe, even in our own church, who sit on these pews, who hear the message, who have prayed a prayer and been baptized and just assume they're okay, but they're lost. They need to be born again And there is nothing that I can do to convince them that they need to be born again. It has to be the Spirit of God. So I'm praying. I'm dependent on God because I can't do it. God, awaken these people. Shake them out of their sleep. Open their blind eyes. Soften their hearts. Quicken them. Bring them to life from the dead. Because I can't. We've talked about this before. I'm particularly burdened for false converts in the church because I used to be one. Preacher's kid, Christian school student, Sunday school attendee, Bible verse memorizing champion. Okay? Had it all right. Outwardly. But just like the Pharisees, Jesus said you're a whitewashed tomb. Outwardly you look nice, everything's good, but inside you are full of dead men's bones. And there's no life. And were it not for the quickening power of the Spirit of God, I would still be a good religious church guy dead in my sins. Like maybe some of you. And it is my prayer that the Holy Spirit would take hold of your heart and open your eyes to the truth and that you would be saved. We need prayer corporately as a church. We need prayer individually as Christians. And you especially need prayer if you've not been born again. Jesus really is coming. He really is coming soon. The end really is near. And even if he doesn't come in your lifetime, your end is still near. My end is still near. Your life will come and go much quicker than you think it will. Days, weeks, maybe years will pass, you will die, and you will stand before God at the judgment. And at that point, there are no second chances. Your life will have been spent, and you will have all eternity, if you're an unbeliever, in hell, to regret every sin and every wasted opportunity to repent and live your life for Jesus. You may pray then, but it will do you no good. Jesus died for you so that you wouldn't have to suffer such punishment. He suffered for you when he went to the cross. He paid your sin debt and purchased your redemption. Friend, you need to pray. You need to fall on your face before God and repent. You need to confess your sins to God and forsake them. You need to pray and beg him for mercy and forgiveness. And he will grant it. That's the only prayer that will do you any good if you're lost. So it's my prayer that he'll draw you to himself and that you'll be born again. Perhaps even today. Church, know this, Jesus is coming soon. The end of all things is at hand. So let us be serious and watchful so that we pray. Stand with me and we'll pray now. Father, your word is powerful. Your word is true. And I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, your word will take root in our hearts and bear fruit. Lord, I pray that each of us would be concerned about our personal holiness. That we would live our lives in such a way that if Jesus were to come today, we would not be ashamed. God, I pray for the loss that we know, our friends, our relatives, who need to be born again. God, show them their need and lead them to salvation. I pray that you would give us boldness and courage to open our mouths and speak to these people. Lord, we don't know when you're coming. Lord, I pray that we would do our part to help others to be ready. God, I pray for your church. I pray for spiritual awakening and revival. That those who sit on church pews every Sunday who are lost would be saved. And that your people would not be complacent, apathetic. May we not just loaf through life as if we have all the time in the world, Lord. But I pray that we would be revived and be serious about our walk with you. And be watchful in our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.